we all as, as growers and as consumers and as voters have a role to play in sort of stepping up and, and having a communal responsibility for it because seeds are fundamentally different in, uh, than other commodities in that they are in living interaction with the world around us. And they're really the potential for the future. They're not something that can be mined out later. You know, we, we can lock a few dozen seeds of each type up in the you know, seed bank and Svalbard in the Arctic Circle, but that's not, that's not going to save us when push comes to shove and we need to, you know, suddenly scale up. It's time for conversations about our food and how it's grown on Farm to Table Talk with your host, Roger Wasson. Farm to Table Talk talks certainly about what's going on in the food system. And, and really, sometimes I'd say that we're finding the seeds of an idea. And now we're going to talk about the ideas of the seeds. Uh, and I'm really happy to welcome the co-founder and business development lead of Seedlinked. And it's Dylan Bruce. Dylan, thanks for being with us today. Welcome to Farm to Table Talk. Thanks for having me, Roger. It's a pleasure to be here today. Well, Dylan, I'm I'm anxious to visit with you because I've had some of my listeners that said, okay, you're covering everything when it comes to farm to table, uh, but it all starts with seeds. And some people are, are kind of worried about the supply, the availability of seeds. Uh, I think you could look at people that are developing regenerative agriculture programs, and they think they need special kinds of seeds. Uh, we have people that are organic programs. We have them that are doing no-till, minimum till, uh, and also people that wake up in the night worried that there won't be seeds available to them, that they see the fact that so much of the seeds in the world are controlled by, I guess, four companies uh, that, that have a huge percentage of all the seeds. And people just fear that that concentration is one thing. But the other, the huge variety of seeds that we used to be able to take advantage of might not be available. And then, and then you can't leave out intellectual property because with some of the technologies that have been developed, the seeds, people have an inability to be able to keep seeds of some crops and plant them, which has been something that for the previous 8,000 years had been possible. So with all of that, now we come back to you in you're based in, in Wisconsin and you're in the, the middle of all this. So, so Dylan, give me something to go on for those listeners that are finding yeah. these things to worry about and where your perspective is and maybe why they don't need to worry, or maybe they need to worry more. So let's, let's jump in. Yeah. So I, I love that you said, uh, you know, the seed is uh, kind of set up seed is the foundation of the food system. And that's really why we're so passionate about what we do at seed length and, and why I originally got interested in, in seed systems is because if you think of any sort of type or stripe of agriculture, as you said, whether that's organic, whether that's new regenerative certifications, or whether it's you know conventional large-scale agriculture, 
seed really is where it all starts. And, you know, it's one of the essential inputs in agriculture. You need water, land, seed, and labor. And, you know, fertilizer is, is another core one, but another core input that people think about, but it's almost not as essential as the seed, right? And so what are we doing with those seeds when we think about the process of developing and releasing new varieties uh, and, and the sort of the story behind the seeds that we use? Each of those varieties is really the culmination of the process of adapting a plant to a specific use case. And so that really echoes back to our whole history of, of agriculture and domestication that led to really uh, the, the rise of these civilizations. And so what we're doing now with all of these crops is 90% of the work has been done over the course of history, domesticating those species, breeding in favorable traits. And now what we're doing in the modern age is sort of the last 10%, the, the finessing you might say, of taking sort of a, a basic pepper and turning it into the perfect bell pepper that has just the right amount of lobes for a wholesale market, the right flavor for a consumer, the right thickness to hold up in shipping. So, you know, plant breeders are thinking about all of these sort of particular traits and how they fit the system that they're trying to move into. And why I think it's particularly important when we talk about sustainable agriculture uh, to think about the seed system behind sustainable agriculture is because in those production systems, whether it's organic or different types, they are different than the dominant paradigm that, that agriculture operates on. And so we can't just be satisfied with the same uh, uh, varieties that we've always grown, that we've always had because they were not adapted specifically to organic or specifically to regenerative. And so really what we're discovering is that in sustainable agriculture in the alternative agriculture movement, we are perhaps not working with the, the, the optimal uh, uh, varieties, the best, the best options. You know, we need to sort of take, and folks are taking a step back now and saying, okay, maybe we need to develop uh, a, a breeding program specifically for organic or specifically for small producers that have, you know, direct marketing and need traits, not just for shipping and wholesale customers, but also for the end consumer to, to really care about. So yeah, you, you, you hit on a lot of points uh, in your intro there. I think I definitely want to talk today a little bit about, um, the freedom to develop those varieties and, and how we look at that interplay between the different stakeholders, the sort of ladder or, or steps from plant breeder to seed company to uh, grower to consumer. And I would love to touch on, you know, some of the, the intellectual property issues uh, as well. Yeah. Well, where to start? We'll start with the seeds. So when you look at plant breeding, Plant breeding was a lot like animal breeding at one one stage because you would take two different plants and you would you would be able to figure out. I don't even want to explain it because I don't think I can very well. <laughs> but but you would have a, a conventional way of 
of doing plant breeding and looking at the plants that were doing what you wanted and you, you know, select for those and then you breed more cake for more of those seeds. And anyway, um, this, we found a way to find seeds of these different products that were just right for what was needed next. Is the technology different today? And, and maybe another question that a lot of people will have on their mind is does um, GMO, genetic engineering, is it a major part of what happens now in um, progressive new plant breeding programs? Yeah, good, good question. So I think there are some essential aspects of plant breeding that ha have been and will remain the same. And so that's really that, you know, in any plant breeding program, you sort of have a funnel. And the, the key thing to start with is you have to have diversity because you have to have uh, enough variation in traits, in aspects to discover and to get to the, the, the point that you're, that you're trying to access. And so all of that diversity is where the wonderful new traits come from. It's where we can have not only a, a red bell pepper, but a purple one too, right? Or something like that. But the, the struggle with plant breeding then is taking that diversity and, and slowly narrowing it, improving it, uh, combining the different traits from the different um, initial material, the initial uh, lines or, or varieties that you're working with, combining that in ways uh, that optimize for a given goal, for a given sis production system or setting, and then uh, making it stable and uniform so that the, the producer, uh, the grower has something reliable to work with. And, um, you know, so, so that's sort of the, the essential aspect of a plant breeding program. And obviously genetic engineering doesn't have to play into that. I, I think that there are some great use cases for genetic engineering in terms of uh, being able to adapt to the stressors of a changing climate. And it has certainly helped, uh, you know, boost agricultural productivity over the over the past years. Um, you know, I, I like to look at an example of something like uh, BT in corn that that prevents uh, lepidopteran or worm or moth pests um, from from eating at the at either the stock or the cob of corn. You know, that's something that that uh, genetically engineering the plant to have that trait prevented growers from having to spray that pesticide on a broad acreage and have potentially many more off-target effects. And so there can be positives of genetic engineering like that, where as an organic farmer, uh, so we have a certified organic operation on, on the farm I grew up and live on. Um, and, uh, you know, with Seedlink, I think where we become a little more concerned about genetic engineering is um, really in the, the how it plays into the market dynamics and the intellectual property that we're starting to touch on, because those traits are much more easily patentable than just, you know, a, a new variety on its own. Right. Because they're, you can more easily claim they're novel, and once a company patents a given trait, they might be able to control that regardless of where it goes. And I think my biggest personal concern is, is the dependency that those systems have created. And 
And this goes to not just genetic engineering, but also the, the plant breeding programs that have developed in these larger companies is that there's become sort of a innate narrowing of the germplasm on, on out in our agricultural landscape. So, excuse me, germplasm is a fancy word for just different varieties, different sure. types of plants. And so if you think about, you know, uh, 150, 200 years ago, there used to be a lot more diversity on the landscape, partly because even if in the upper Midwest where I live, everyone was growing corn for their cattle, there were many different seed companies or oftentimes just the individual farmers saving their own seed. And so innately that process is creating diversity. The the sort of open pollination of a given population of corn on someone's farm over time is going to be evol evolved to be different than 50 miles away, what somebody else is doing. And so as we've had these larger companies releasing these traits that our sort of production systems become dependent on, um, you know, there's, there's just a narrowing of the uh, the, the diversity that's on the agricultural landscape, which makes us more sensitive to, to certain, uh, you know, pressures, whether it's a new pest, a new disease, or, um, you know, changes in climate and other, uh, abiotic factors, whether it's rainfall or, or things like wind too, that we don't always think about. So we have to remember that in a plant breeding program, it's a recurrent process. And so they're taking, you know, if, if a company is making a new corn hybrid, they have one parent line and they have another parent line and both of those, they are improving over time. And when they're getting ready to make a new hybrid, they might have offshoots of those parent lines because those parent lines already have great traits. They've already had a lot of work go into them. And so this recurrent process sort of exacerbates that, that narrowing of diversity because they say, oh, we are, you know, we already have the trait we need in this over here. So we're not going to go as far and, and look at some more uh, diverse material to bring in. And so that's, that's sort of part of what's contributed to this, this narrowing uh, 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 of diversity on the landscape. Well, and, and I, think, you know, I was just, I was just going to say some people uh, have assumed that this is a They've heard more about about these uh, about plants uh, uh, ownership, intellectual property, and so forth after GMO. But yeah. in fact, it applied to hybrids too. I mean, the you've been able to patent whether or not a product was genetically engineered uh, that still have patents on on these plants, right? Yeah, that's right. And so maybe it's good to take a step back and talk about what types of intellectual property we have that apply to sure. plants. And so, you know, the first one and the oldest one is, is trade secrets. Um, and that is really just, you know, keeping secret, which, what is parent one and what is parent two to create that perfect hybrid. So, you know, if you look back, uh, the kind of first spike in productivity came with the advent of hybrid breeding um, in the early 1900s. And at that same time, we started to have a little bit of consolidation of uh, seed companies that were jumping on that train and, and exercising those trade secrets, uh, maybe growing and, and taking over some of the smaller localized seed houses. And then you get later down the line and we start to um, have the, the ability to 
um, sorry, not, not too much later down the line, also in the early 1900s, um, you know, folks were saying, okay, we have these trade secrets to protect things like um, corn with, with, that's produced as hybrids. But what about something like potatoes that are so valuable, produced all over the place, um, but they're clonally reproduced, right? You take one potato tuber and replant it, it's going to be pretty much the same as the plant that created it uh, once, once it grows up. And so people were trying to figure out, okay, if I put all this energy into research and development to create a new potato variety, how do I get anything back from that? And so they created um, plant patents. Um, it, the laws for plant patents were passed and those um, essentially applied only to um, to clonally reproduced things. So that's, you know, potatoes are the big example. There's a lot of uh, sort of the common house plants or landscaping flowers that we are used to are also clonally reproduced, many citrus varieties, things like that. Um, now, when we think about intellectual property, we have to keep in mind it's an interplay between the legislation enabling it, but also the technology that we have to enforce that legislation. And so with the plant patents, they really apply just to clonal uh, reproduction of things because you can look at something and tell, is this the same as, you know, so one seed company could look across the road at the other seed company and say, hey, that, that potato is exactly the same as the potato that I created. So, you know, you ripped me off. When we get further down the line and there was a lot more research that had been done on genetics, um, you know, we get into, I think in the 80s, enforcement, um, the, the capability for enforcement enabled them to pass new laws um, that uh, allowed for enforcement of other types of, of plants, not just clonally reproduced, but also true breeding plants. And so that really affected mostly things like soybeans, which are self-pollinated and thus, you know, the farmer can reliably buy it once and produce it on their own field and harvest some of that seed. And the next year, if they replant it, it'll be pretty much the same and, and productive. Versus hybrids, if they harvest that hybrid, plant it back out the next year, it's going to be all over the place, not very productive. So the farmer still has an incentive to go back to the seed company and buy it again. But for the uh, uh, things like soybeans, that are, are self-pollinating, they don't, they, you know, didn't have that incentive. And so there's this concern that who's going to put in money for research and development um, if, if, you know, we can't get our money back. And so they created something called plant variety protection. And so you usually heard it referred to as just PVP. And PVP as a law says that a seed company cannot take another seed company's material and resell it same as it is without a licensing agreement. But what plant variety protection does allow for is for plant breeders to use it as material. So they can still access the traits of a plant variety protected um, cultivar from a seed company. So say you have this amazing disease resistance in uh, in soybean that one seed company came up with and they put uh they got a pvp for it and it's, it's protected for 20 years so that nobody can resell the same variety 
but another seed company can come in and use that in their breeding program to create something new. And so PVP is sort of a nice balance between allowing a seed company to recoup some of their um, R&D costs while not totally locking up that germplasm. And so it's still out there and available for people to work with. And the other nice part about PVP is that, you know, whether it's under the table or sort of in a gray zone of the law, uh, farmers can still use that seed for their own purposes as as long as they're not selling it commercially as that same variety. And so it, it, you know, both allows for seed system resilience because it it allows for plant breeding and it allows for on-farm resilience because farmers can be self-sufficient with their seed. But fast forward a little bit further, genetic technology gets a little bit further. We're starting to have the the hints of these uh, transgenic traits, the true genetic engineering of, of varieties. And we there's, there's a f- famous court case in the early 80s that says, you know what, we're going to apply the utility patent laws, the most restrictive laws that were developed basically for engineering applications to life forms. Because previously, the court had said, you can't patent something that's in nature. But uh, if that applied, that court case first applied to a, a microorganism. And then about five years later in the mid 80s, they said, you know what? This applies to plants as well. And the big difference with those utility patents is that they are entirely restrictive. Until that utility patent is up after the course of 20 years, no other plant breeder can use that in their breeding program. No farmer can save seed from that. And so now we kind of have this this sort of um, triple or quadruple entendre of intellectual property here. We have trade secrets that apply mostly to hybrids. We have the plant patents that apply to clonally reproduced things. We have plant variety protection, which applies mostly to self-pollinated crops that provides some protection and and licensing requirements so that people can recoup R&D costs. But then now we have the the application of utility patents to plants that are entirely restrictive. And unfortunately, what you see nowadays is that a lot of people are you you a lot of companies are utilizing multiples of those, all of those. And originally, in the plant variety protection requirements, and in in, in other and in, in the utility patents, you know, part of the argument for those intellectual property systems is um, disclosure of of how you're developing this thing. So in the case of the PVP, the plant variety protection, people would actually have to put some of that germplasm out there, um, you know, in in a government controlled resource that could be accessed later. And in the case of a utility patent, you know, nowadays with the internet, anybody can go on Google and look up a patent and you can kind of figure out how something works so that you can start thinking of the next best thing and how you might change the industry and, and develop something new and exciting. But one of the problems that we have in agriculture and in, in seed loss is that that uh, this, whether that disclosure requirement is being fully met, I think is a little bit up for debate. Because just because a, a company says in their patent filing, we're using line RS124X7, and 
R24X6 to create this new hybrid that we're patenting, that doesn't really tell anybody anything. And so that means that their competitors can't do anything to keep up. And so by the time that patent is up and that germplasm is available, we're, you know, 15, 20 years down the line. And only then can a competitor come in and say, great, now I can use this. Now I can bring this great disease resistance to my customers. So what we've done is really reduce a lot of resilience and flexibility in the system through the application of these multiple layers of intellectual property. That's really fascinating. And I don't want to complicate this, and nor do I want to necessarily go down the GMO rabbit holes because there's so many places to get concerned. But I do want to back up the GMO just a bit because uh, what's happening lately is the discussion that CRISPR is not really GMO from USDA purposes. And, um, and, I'm, and I'm wondering if the implications of the CRISPR technology as an evolution of different from necessarily the kind of genetic engineering that was taking place, what we refer to as GMO with Roundup Ready and, and so forth and BT corn. Yeah. Uh, is, is that a fork in the road where there's some differences too in the implications of, of utilization of that technology? I think there are, and in, in terms of sort of the how it plays into the dynamics of control and resiliency in the seed industry, I would say that one of the big differences is that CRISPR is a much more, uh, what's the right, it, the, the, as a tool, it has a lot more breadth. It has a lot more possible applications. So it's not, it, you know, you could use traditional genetic engineering with a gene gun or, or agrobacterium to do some research, but CRISPR is a lot more efficient at that. And so it does allow people to, you know, even if they're not, um, you know, it allows people to learn a lot more about how the plants work. It allows, and, and it does allow for much more precise, um, you know, manipulation of the genetics. Um, and that manipulation is not necessarily engineering in the sense that we're used to. It might not be, uh, you know, so, so for instance, BT as a trait, you know, that, that trait was taken from a bacteria and put into corn and an application for CRISPR could look be much simpler. It could look like something like we're not bringing anything into corn, but maybe we want to create uh, a shorter corn plants or taller corn plants. And so we're going to turn down or turn up uh, existing gene that's in already in corn. So you know, I, I don't want to go too deep on that because I'm not an, an expert on on CRISPR traditional genetic engineering. But from my view, uh, and you know, w- where I look at it from a perspective of or- organic farming is is um, it, it is a lot more flexible. I don't know that I feel it's it's necessarily more natural. You know, the the agrobacterium and and how that mechanism worked for traditional uh, genetic engineering that's been around for you know, 10,000 years, uh, you know, there's, there's traces of that. And, you know, sweet potato was domesticated right around the time that there were some key uh, genes inserted by agrobacterium historically. So, you know, whether or not we're already growing uh, genetically engineered crops, I think is the classic argument that you hear from these big companies, right? And, oh, we're already manipulating the genetics of traditional breeding. 
Now, of course, it's really different. And, and I think that is a lot because of the, the control and the sort of dependency of our production systems. And we can get into the, the, the treadmill that that puts farmers on. But I do think that there are some key differences with um, CRISPR-Cas, and, and I don't think we should jump to conclusions. It's still a young technology. I think a lot of the applications that it's been uh, put to so far are very similar to what we think of as genetic engineering, but they're not, you know, it's not, it's not exactly the same, and, and there's a lot to be discovered. You know, it's, it's interesting because uh, probably in the area that you are in Wisconsin, as if where I grew up in Illinois, years ago, these big old barns that everybody had had like an oat bin. And the, uh, the oat bin, when it gave time to, to uh, drill the oats, you would uh, you would take your you would go out there and get in a scoop shovel and just take them right out of the oat bin and put them back in and you go out and drill them or broadcast them or something get oats out on the field pretty simple you didn't have to worry about writing anybody a big check or deal with the intellectual property you had those right. you had those oats you could use them forever and um, corn was a little bit more ad advanced and and still I remember that my mom used to talk about all of the. Uh, independent uh, seed companies that she could go right. detassel for. And you talk to people that were born in the earlier part of the last century, and when they could tell those stories, they wouldn't have to drive far to hit a seed company. Right. And, and, and that and makes a huge difference. Companies. Yeah. And if I can just speak to that for a second, you know, I think uh, we, when we saw this consolidation in the, in the seed industry um, through the course of these new intellectual property laws, through the course of new plant breeding technology, whether that was hybrid or genetic engineering, you know, it's all well and good and people are seeing productivity go up, but we didn't think about the long-term consequences. And now that we're in the age of climate change, what's happening is we're, as a as an industry as a whole, the seed industry is not able to be as responsive as it needs to be to all of the different production areas. So, for example, if you think about vegetables in the United States, there's a huge proportion that's produced either in California or in Florida, basically. And so, here I am in the Midwest as a vegetable farmer. The seed companies don't care how I'm doing. I, you know, our our market is such a sliver. Uh, I and excuse me, let me back up. I shouldn't say all the seed companies don't care, but by and large, you know, if we're talking about these big multinational companies, they don't care too much what's happening in our market. And so, you know, we've had cases where the very best carrot for us or the very best uh, bell pepper for us is just dropped. You know, nobody offers it anymore. Mm -hmm. A local seed company can't pick it up because it's, uh, you know, tightly controlled either through trade secrets or other laws. Um, and, and, you know, the big seed company isn't going to sell it to us anymore because it doesn't do well in California. So they're not going to produce the seed of it and because it's not there for the biggest market. So as we've lost these small local seed companies, and as we see our, our climates changing in new ways and very localized ways, right? Like, right. You, you know, how the climate is changing for me in Southwest Wisconsin is different than how it's changing for people in Northeast Wisconsin. So even in our relatively small region and not having those small local seed companies means no one is really paying attention to our particular needs. Perhaps more important, no one is actively keeping up with it. 
Because if that seed company was there, you know, even though there are a handful of awesome seed companies in the United States that that do care um, and and are really mission oriented, um, you know, there's an aspect of it that's just the process of the natural of, of the of the selection in a given environment. And if they're not producing their seed, if they're not creating their new varieties in our environment, they will never be as adapted as they could be. And so one of the things that we think about at Seed Length a lot is this concept of hyper-adaptation. So traditionally, plant breeding is seeking broad adaptation so that your new variety is applicable to a large market and you can sell it all over the place. But the commercial best, the best commercial variety in California is not going to be the same as in Portland, Oregon is not going to be the same as in Fargo, North Dakota is not going to be the same as Wisconsin and on and on and on. And so what we're trying to understand by doing this crowdsourcing of data and, and, you know, assisting smaller seed companies in the process of breeding and trialing new varieties we're seeking that hyper adaptation. What is the right tomato to plant in Madison, Wisconsin? What is the exact right tomato to plant in Sacramento, California? You know, so, so that we versus LA versus Salinas, you know, because it, it's going to be different and that's the reality. There's going to be some overlap, but we're sort of organically starting to get a, this idea of um, defining bioregions, sort of, sort of crop bioregions. So for a given crop, maybe there's a, a region that's, you know, one shape and, and encompasses these three states. And in that area, these are the top five varieties. But if you look at a different crop, that bioregion might be different. And the overlap might be different between, between states and growing regions. And one of the things that we can do with digital technologies like this is, is kind of leverage, you, you know, it, sort of pseudo AI and, and really the, the, the power of big data to start to unlock these really specific recommendations and understand that. And what that enables us to do is look back to some of those um, heirloom varieties or newer open pollinated varieties that maybe don't have the broad adaptation to the, the biggest market. And so they haven't been a commercial standard, but Hey, maybe it turns out that in our neck of the woods, that heirloom that was bred 50 years ago is still excellent. And then that variety doesn't have the tight intellectual property that was on it. And so a small regional seed company can pick it up, start producing it uh, to, for sale or work with it at, for a new breeding projects. And maybe you know, maybe we have a new disease that we need some resistance for. And so, boom, they have a use case right there. We're going to use this old pepper that's got great flavor and great yield but and get this new disease resistance in there. And then they have a new variety that one of the big multinational companies would never have bred because they don't have the focus. So I wonder, I wonder with the with the climate shifting as it's doing, uh, can you go back and say, well, okay, so in this part of Wisconsin, what we ought to be looking at is what was how things were grow, growing well in Stillwater, Oklahoma in 1940. And by the same token, then you be an expert, you're going to have to move to Ontario because the people up in Ontario aren't 
they're not going to be used to what was working really well. But if they looked at southwestern Wisconsin, that yeah. might be the ticket. You're you're right on the money there. And that's why with SeedLink, we really have a global vision, right? Because we can learn from what somebody in Germany has been doing. And we can learn from what someone in Maine has been doing in Wisconsin. And so what we're trying to do, and we have an exciting new phase coming this, this, this coming year where we're launching a lot more trialing in Europe. And for the first time, that, that data um, from growers here, growers there is going to be able to speak back and forth, and we're all going to be able to benefit each other. And there are a lot of efforts like that to look at, you know, both historically, what are the climate analogs? And in present day, what are the climate analogs? And what are my climate analogs now? And what are my climate analogs 20 years, 50 years in the future so that we can start gathering some material from those areas and working towards those goals? So that, that's exactly right. And again, it's something that the larger seed companies are probably not going to take on just because of, you know, they are focused on profitability now and in the near future, and they want to serve the large, largest growing regions, but it's really key. And so there's a lot of really cool small seed companies um, that are starting to, to look at that. What, is, what are heirlooms from this region or that region of the world that they can bring in to, to serve their area? Well, you know, in addition to just going back 100 years or 50 or 60 years, I mean, some are going back like a thousand years. When you look at uh, indigenous tribes, and, and certainly that's the case with maize or what you and I grew up calling corn uh, and through North and, and South America, even too, of trying to find these varieties that work so well for different tribes in different in different regions. So they're trying yeah. to dig back, too. It r- makes me wonder who's in charge of the history here, because uh, you started this conversation by describing kind of a funnel of ending up having all the seeds down to four or five com- companies, and that naturally a company that's bottom line oriented is going to be looking at scale. So they're going to be looking at not necessarily fiddling around with these these uh, needs or going back and finding what worked well in this indigenous community or the the shifts to take care of these smaller markets. Whose job is that? Right. I think that's where we all, you know, as, as growers and as consumers um, and, and as voters have a role to play in sort of stepping up and, and having a communal responsibility for it because seeds are fundamentally different in, uh, than other commodities in that they are in living interaction with the world around us. And they're really the potential for the future. They're not something that can be mined out later. You know, we, we can lock a few dozen seeds of each type up in the, the you know, seed bank and Svalbard in the Arctic Circle, but that's not, that's not going to save us when push comes to shove and we need to, you know, suddenly scale up uh, wheat production in a localized zone. And so the, this issue of, of whose responsibility is it is, is very important. And I, I appreciate that you brought up the um, issue of an, an indigenous seed sovereignty and seed rights as well, because it's also something that we're thinking a lot about. And I think brings up interesting points um, in regards to intellectual property. You know, I, I think in a romanticized way, a lot of us would like to think, okay, you know, let's get rid of the seed patents. Let's get rid of those controls. We need open access and open rights for all. 
But that also goes wrong sometimes. And some of the most extractive uh, plays that these large multinational companies ha have taken have been coming into indigenous agricultural systems. And, um, you know, basically it's, it's that biopiracy issue of, of basically mining those communities for their, for their maize or for their, um, uh, you know, other varieties that might have special traits. And, it's important that that uh, indigenous communities and, and tri tribal nations have avenues and options to control that seed themselves, you know, so that their uh, their heritage in in those seeds, their their living heritage, stays with them, and that that they have some rights over that. So there's other options like open source seed licensing, um, other things like that, you know, this idea of, of maybe no seed intellectual property, but we have to keep in mind that there are communities out there, um, there are individual plant breeders and there are communities like, like indigenous communities that deserve to have some say in what happens with, the, with their sort of heritage there. And so, you know, that, that there needs to be some legal mechanism. And I, I, I don't think uh, you know, from the the conversations I've overheard and what I've read, I don't I don't think any of the tribal nations really feel like the utility patent is the right route for that, or maybe any of the traditional intellectual property options that they have. But there are ongoing conversations to try and figure out what is the next paradigm of seed intellectual property, because we do want our plant breeders to keep doing their great work and to create new varieties. And we do want communities to, to be able to have some say in, in what is done with their heirloom uh, varieties. So, you know, that, that's to be determined, to be discovered. But I think it's important to keep that in mind. You, you know, I have to tell you, I just, just recently had an opportunity to go walk through a pasture uh, in Northern California with Joel Salatin that many people have heard of. He's written about 15 books, including famously, uh, you know, um, folks, this ain't normal about, about agriculture today. But one thing Joel was able to point out to me, uh, we were into, into an area where some natural grasses were coming back that had disappeared for over 100 years. And just letting nature take care of itself, seeds want to be survivors. And, and yeah. the ability for the, the resilience in, in seeds to, to come back if they're given not even half a chance, but just a little bit of a chance, you know, in, in the natural environment, bringing them back. Now, how you harness that and, and that ability and that intent of seeds to want to live and grow and spread and come back and so forth, it's still going to take commercial operations um, and government, like you're pointing out. Yeah, I, th I think it is to a certain extent. And I think that, you know, we have to keep in mind that resilience of seeds for our food crops is, is uh, linked to the resilience of, of communities. And so, you know, there's, there's an ongoing relationship between the seed saver and the seed. And so it's, it's you know, the, the sort of will uh, and, and uh, you know, innate ability in the seed, but it's also the, the sort of willpower and innate ability of the person in relationship to, to that variety or seed. And it, 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 it takes both. And I think one of the things that I've been excited to see, see in the alternative seed community in recent years are the, are these efforts of rematriation of 
seeds of especially of indigenous varieties and so you know from larger seed companies or or seed banks or the whether that's you know private seed banks nonprofit seed banks or the the government database to return some of those varieties that they came in and took from indigenous communities and 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 help help them scale that back up to a useful uh place for that community so i encourage folks that are out there to you know ch check out those companies look for companies that are doing it um because it's a really powerful sign of a mission-oriented company well it sounds like you have a mission-oriented company i mean when you talk to seed link you're finding seeds that fit needs and buying selling seeds connecting sharing collaborating testing new varieties and i could tell from our conversation today dylan that you're pretty passionate ab about this and you also are one of these farm kids that left and came back why don't you yeah. tell us a, a minute about your journey because you grew up on a farm you went off did something else and then you you know that's you're back right and getting excited about seeds yeah yeah so i grew up on this this farm that i'm i'm at today and my parents when i was a kid they ran a csa and um you know in middle school even into high school a little bit my sister and i uh didn't get allowance we got we got help growing a garden plot that we could take to the farmers market and you know that, that's that's what we did for some spare cash at times and so um i was definitely a farm kid growing up and i thought by the end of high school i was like gotta get as far away from the farms i can can't wait to get out of the midwest so i first moved to chicago and worked in a, a grocery st store there downtown for a while and um and then moved out to la for college and went to Occidental College, worked on their procurement program and sort of sustainable procurement and uh, there and over the course of college and, and those, those and other travels, I was re really realized, you know, there's a few too many people out here for me. Maybe I do miss the farm and want to get back. And so within a week of graduating in 2016, I was back at, at in, in Madison, Wisconsin, had taken a job with the university and was running a, a field vegetable research program for a professor there. And so I did that research and, and trialing of varieties so that we could figure out what's the best variety to grow for our area farmers and relay that information to them. Did that for about five years and was kind of frustrated by the feedback loops. And why wasn't I learning how things were performing from the farmers and, and how difficult it was to get my data back to the farmers? And that's when I met our, the co-founder of Seedlinked, uh, Nico, and had some great conversations, jumped on board and really envisioned this tool that would not only allow for these feedback loops so that everybody's data is accessible, everybody's data can speak to each other, I can find other growers in my regions or other in the country, other regions in the country to learn from. and not only have that that data proof those data points there to make decisions but also the the social proof so that it's real other production commercial farmers that, that are informing my decisions you know that kind of social validity and then have that link seamlessly to to a marketplace where you could access these varieties and these seeds from over a dozen different companies so that you can sort of support a diversity of scales of companies, local, small organic ones to larger ones that might have the production hybrids we still rely on um, and really create this 
as we envision it, sort of, yeah, next paradigm of, of, of seed where the, that seed story that we talked a little bit about is, is ongoing, is evolving, where we as growers can contribute to it. Um, and where seed companies can access new markets and, and get their varieties out there into the world. You know, it's it's daunting in many ways, uh, and and yet when you describe what's going on and how what has motivated you, you almost remind me too of of other people that have gotten into farming. Some of them, like you, left the farm, did something else for another career, and they're coming back, but they're coming back smaller, and so that uh, rather than the an industry that necessarily gets bigger and bigger and bigger and large scale and have to have thousands of acres or some of the huge confinement livestock operations and, and so forth, they're finding opportunities to kind of get right-sized and, and smaller. And, and so I kept thinking as you were describing the needs and seed companies of, in a way of how do you capture that? How do you go back to some of that feeling when, when you had more seed companies that were concerned about smaller geographic areas? And so, so many things I think you're going to make my listeners think about, and you've made me think about. And I have to, I have to ask you with with all of that and all that we've covered, uh, what gives you the most hope about where we are today, or better yet, where we can be five years from now? Yeah, this is one of the things that I should have started off with. Uh, but one thing that really gets me excited is, you know. We're familiar with these stories of consolidation in the seed industry, the big companies getting bigger and buying other big companies. But that's only half the story because it's actually a U-shaped trend and there's an increasing number of small and independent seed companies reappearing. And I think that's a testament to on both the consumer and grower scale, uh, commercial grower scale, kind of a a rejection of this narrowing of choices, a, a, a rejection of the tight intellectual property control or other things like genetic engineering and re realizing that we do need these localized seed systems. If we as, as eaters want to have a local food system and, and you know resilient local farms, I think people are starting to realize that that has to be underpinned by a resilient local or regional seed system. So, you know, I, I make an effort and I would encourage other folks too to, you know, find regional seed companies that you can purchase from. Uh, you know, I, I encourage folks to check out SeedLinked and see some of the companies that we have on there and, and check out the tool so that you can, you know, say that you need a, a tomato, for instance, that is uh, high yielding and flavorful and disease resistant for your area and, and we'll, we'll help you find that and connect to a seed company that offers it um, because there's a lot of great local seed companies out there and there's a lot, you know, a, a lot more and ongoing effort from public institutions and plant breeders to serve the needs of, of, of smaller regions and, and find that hyper adaptation that we're talking about. Um, so that's, that's what gives me hope is seeing these seed companies start up and, and get their products out there and, and kind of a return to that. And I hope that we reach a, a, a point again where there's a, a dozen seed companies in every state. Well, and just to wrap up, how do you carry the water for those, those ventures to policymakers? 
And at what stage at USDA or what the, the FAO with the United Nations or State Departments of Agriculture, uh, is there a role to play for individuals that care like you care about this to be able to get policymakers to find ways either to support these developments, encourage them, promote them? Uh, what's that frontier look like? Yeah, so so really all of the above that you mentioned. So it is important to engage with state departments of agriculture, which sometimes have somewhat restrictive seed laws that uh, were were really developed as these multinational companies grew and, and took hold of the market. Um, and so making sure that those seed laws are are open enough to encourage innovation on a regional scale, but also have enough. Uh, resources built in that those regional companies can access, for instance, uh, disease testing or, or other things to make sure uh, that we're getting quality seed out to people. Absolutely on a federal scale, you know, and reaching out to um, right now I'm working on comments on consolidation in the seed industry and there are other passionate uh, folks out there, you know, USDA is, is listening and interested in what we have to say about it. So it's important sort of to hit all levels. And I would say one of the things that we probably didn't touch on enough today, but is a key piece here is our land grant institutions. And they're used to, you know, the argument for intellectual property is that if the big companies don't get their money back, who's going to do the breeding work? Well, that breeding was and and has been, and in some cases still is being done by publicly funded institutions and public plant breeders. And so making sure that we don't lose those, those public plant breeders that we still have at our institutions um, and trying to lobby to, to create new positions or, or um, you know, fu fully funded positions to, to allow for that public plant breeding is really important because they're always going to be looking out for needs that are forgotten by the, the biggest companies. You know, I think that's a real important point to add because the land grant universities of the research done there for the public, are, you know, is really important. USDA used to do a lot more work than I think they're doing now at their regional USDA laboratories as, as well. And what's happened is if the state's and the federal are not funding the land grant universities for agriculture research, including crop breeding, um, then it just forces them to get grants from the, the four big seed companies that you talked about. And they're doing work for them because they have labs that they're trying to finance and they're not getting enough support from taxpayers. So I'm really glad you mentioned that because that's a key area. It is. Yep. And and we're lucky here in Wisconsin. And I think you are out there as well in California to still have some great public plant breeders. And it makes a huge difference in supporting the revival of these, uh, you know, regional seed companies. Well, I tell you what, uh, we've had a lot of conversations of, about food and we've ignored sometimes the very beginning. And I appreciate you. The very beginning is the seeds themselves and maybe even thinking about the seeds, which you're making people think about the seeds today. So, Dylan Bruce, I, thank you for being on Farm to Table Talk. Thank you for the opportunity. And I encourage folks to check out seedlink.com to find some vegetable seeds and, and, you know, feel free to contact me with other questions.
You've been listening to Farm to Table Talk with your host, Roger Wasson. If you like what you hear, go to farmtotabletalk.com and follow us. Farm to Table Talk.